in uh, your copy of God's Word to John chapter 11. I was here, I believe I preached on the Good Shepherd passage, and uh, at Brighton I've been going through the signs of John and the I Am statements of John earlier in John chapter 11. Jesus refers to himself as, not the last I Am statement, but uh, two from the end, but he calls himself the resurrection and the life. Uh, we hear that at funerals. I did a funeral this past uh, Monday, and at the graveside, that was the passage I read as well. Uh, but we come here to what's generally referred to as the seventh sign of John, and that is one of the better-known signs, the resurrection of Lazarus. I'm going to argue that it's not really the last miraculous sign of John that we see, but it does wrap up the first half of the Gospel of John. And our passage comes to us this morning. It'll be John chapter 11, verses 38 through 44. Hear now the word of God. And so Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for days. And Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they removed the stone. And Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that uh, you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound head and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And may the Lord bless the reading hearing of his holy word. If you would, let's go again to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come this morning again to your word, and we ask that you would give us a right and clear understanding of these words, that we would see what it means for Jesus to be the resurrection and the life. We would see what this sign, this seventh sign, this miraculous sign of the Lord Jesus Christ means, that we would see your glory in these things. We ask now that by your Holy Spirit you would teach them to us, and we ask all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Well, the first half of John's Gospel is often referred to as the Book of Signs, because in these chapters, John records for us seven well-known signs. Uh, signs is just a word for miraculous works of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the first six of these, most of them, again, would be familiar to us. The water into wine, the wedding feast in Cana, uh, the healing of the nobleman's son at the end of John chapter 4. Uh, Jesus heals a crippled man by the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. In John chapter 6, we have two of these signs. He feeds the 5,000, and then he later walks on water. Uh, and then in John chapter 9, he heals a blind man, a man who had been blind from birth. Now these are not the only miracles that Jesus did. John 20 tells us that Jesus did many more miracles that are not recorded 
in this gospel. But these miracles have been given to us. They are given to us uh, for a purpose, and that is that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing in him, we would have life in his name. And so this morning we come to the seventh and final of these signs which John records. And this may be to us the most famous of these signs, the most well-known of them, and that is Lazarus rising from the dead. In John 11, Jesus has made it clear more than once about the great miracle which is about to take place. So if we were going to say this in our day, we would call this foreshadowing, or we would call these spoilers. Jesus has already given us the spoilers about what he is planning to do. In verse 11, he tells the disciples, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. Now this confuses the disciples, even though Jesus uses a well-known euphemism for death in his day. That he's asleep. That's what the disciples literally think that he means. He has to explain how he is going to uh, awaken him out of his death. Uh, in verse 23, he tells Martha, your brother will rise again. That's about as direct as you can get it. But even she misunderstands that to some degree, as we will see later in the passage this morning. And then finally, Lazarus' other sister, Mary, comes to Jesus. But when she comes to him, she is just a mess. She's in tears. She's grieving. And there are other mourners who come with her as well, grieving. Uh, it says uh, in verse, uh, uh, this, all this weeping elicits a very unexpected response from Jesus. And in verse 33, we read that he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now that word deeply moved and it's used again for us in our passage, we need to understand what that means. It, it carries the idea that Jesus was upset, that he was put off by what he was seeing. The word that is used here was sometimes used to the, to the snorting of a horse. And we think that is a very strange thing. But I, I, I told my congregation last week when I preached on the previous passage, if you've been around me for five minutes, when I become exacerbate or exasperated by something, I do one of these. <sighs> Let out one of these sighs, and I want you to think something along the same line is happening here. It says that Jesus is troubled. He's displeased at what he is seeing. There's a great deal of misunderstanding, even unbelief that took place that day. Uh, and we see that in verse 37 where the crowd say, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? These are people who knew, they saw, they saw what Jesus had done in John 9 with the healing of the blind man, and yet they still doubt, they still do not believe in what they are saying. And certainly Jesus could have uh, uh, healed Lazarus, but there is more going on here, just as there is more going on in John chapter 2 than Jesus changing water into wine at a wedding feast. Uh, there's more going on in John chapter 6 than Jesus simply feeding 5,000. There's more going on than physical needs or social requirements being met. It's for the glory of God. That's what Jesus says, that these signs are meant to bring glory to God. They're meant to bring glory to him, to show without question that he is the Son of God, that the blessings of God had come into the world, and that he is standing before them in the flesh as the promised Messiah. 
But Jesus here is going to perform one of his greatest miracles. And we would say this is perhaps greater than simply providing food or providing healing, even greater than restoring sight to the blind. And again, it's to demonstrate to people that he is the promised Messiah, and he is showing them that he is the one who is the resurrection and the life. And so our passage begins with Jesus coming to the tomb, and in verse 38, there's the, 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 the repeating of the same word, the same phrase. It says, Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Uh, the King James, I, I kind of like the, the, the way it translates it here. He was groaning in himself. Uh, this is something that was truly troubling Jesus. He's still troubled when he comes to the tomb. In part, it's because of the unbelieving crowd that has gathered. In part, it's because of the reality of sin and death. And when we are confronted with sin and death, despite what the world tells us, this is just perfectly normal. This is just the circle of life is anything but. That should trouble us. It should trouble us when we are confronted with sin and with death. It should comfort us to know what Jesus says here, that he is the one who conquers sin and death, that he is the resurrection and the life. But it's he is reacting this way because of the way the people are reacting or responding toward death. And when he gets there, there's a stone that is over the opening of the tomb. So Jesus orders that it be removed, that it be moved out of the way. And Martha's objection here seems perfectly reasonable uh, if, if we are not expecting what Jesus is about to do. She says, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for, for four days. Uh, uh, most of us remember, again, the King James, uh, Lord, by this time he stinketh. Uh, that's the way it's translated. Uh, well, the Jews would preserve the body upon death. They would put spices and so forth on it, but they did not practice embalming. And so uh, because of that, the body would have begun to decompose, and there would certainly be a stench in such case. And the point of all this, though, is to demonstrate the certainty of Lazarus' death. He has been in this tomb. He's been dead for four days. He's been laid there. He's certainly dead. And there's no real question about his physical death. He's not in some coma. He didn't simply faint or swoon or something like that. So Jesus responds to her in verse 40. Did I not say to you that you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Jesus had some, said something similar to his disciples back in verse 4. He had received word from the two sisters that Lazarus was very ill. And so he had said, this sickness is not to end in death but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And I said that the first half of John's Gospel is often called the Book of Signs. The second half of John's Gospel is often called the Book of Glory. And I also often point out to people that one of the truly wondrous, earth-shaking verses in all of the Bible, certainly the New Testament, has to be John 1.14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, perhaps another earth-shattering, uh, there was no earth at the time, but earth-shattering verses at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what John 1-14 tells us is that now the Son of God has taken flesh and he has entered into this creation. He has dwelt among us. But that's only the first half of John 114. The second half is also very important. 
The whole verse reads, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And what John wants his readers to know is that this is firsthand information. This is eyewitness testimony. He's saying we saw these things. We saw these miracles. We walked with him. We saw what he did. We saw his glory. And because we saw his glory, we want you to see the glory of the Savior, Jesus Christ. John begins his first epistle with these words. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our own eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life, and the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That word for fellowship in, in Scripture, the Greek word koinonia, means to have things in common, to share things. It's a word that's also used to refer to the Lord's Supper. It is a sharing. It is a fellowship. It is a fellowship that we have with one another, but it's a fellowship that we have with the triune God as well. John wants his readers to know about this Jesus who has come. And he tells us that these signs of Jesus serve a purpose to point to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus' words to Martha here in verse 40 give us two important, I think critical, crucial aspects to living the Christian life in a world that is often hostile to the gospel, a world in which we will have tribulation and grief and suffering and pain and various troubles in it. He says, if you believe, and this is what we are called to do, we are called to believe, we are called to live by faith, we are to live our lives trusting in the true and living God no matter the circumstances, and we are called to entrust our lives and our very souls to his Son, Jesus Christ. Now Martha confessed that she believed that Jesus was the promised Christ. She does this earlier in the chapter. She confesses that he is the son of God who has come into this world. But what Jesus is calling her to do, he is stretching out that faith. You said this, Martha. Now let's put it into practice. Let's live it out, these implications of your confession of faith. And he says, if you do this, and I tell you, dear Christian, if you do this, if you are believing in the Son of God, then you will see the glory of God. That all things take place so that God will be glorified, that we will live our lives. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And uh, if you've ever read the Heidelberg Catechism, be glad I didn't ask you the first question and answer the Heidelberg Catechism much longer. But that's a very short and sweet, and I've taught on that before, and it's true with the Heidelberg Catechism as well. What is the meaning of life? This is the meaning of life. It is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But notice it begins with glorifying God. That is our purpose. Even God's glory as it comes first in there, it must be our goal. And if we 
behold the glory of God, if we are living our lives to the glory of God, then we will enjoy God and all things must be hid to his glory, even the death of Lazarus as we see in this passage. Jesus comes to the tomb and there are two actions that he does here. The first is prayer and often tell people, they say, what shall we pray uh, that's essentially the, the question the disciples asked Jesus when he gave them the Lord's Prayer. But we learn prayers by reading the Bible, by seeing the prayers in the Bible. The prayers of Jesus, of course, being very important here, a good instruction for us. And here's what he says in verse 41. Jesus raised up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you. You have heard me. And prayer begins here with reverence. Our prayer should begin with reverence. He lifts up his eyes and he addresses the Father. We do the same thing. We prayed the Lord's Prayer earlier. We begin with our Father, which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. We are called in prayer to come to him, to do so with love and respect, with reverence, and with confidence in the manner that a trusting child would come to a loving father. We pray that his name would be hallowed, that it would be set apart. And prayer also includes what it includes being prepared with thanksgiving. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to, to God. Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Or 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. So even though Jesus is deeply troubled, uh, our passage tells us that twice, even though he is now staring into the tomb of a dear friend who is now dead, he stops, he gives thanks to the Father, and we must give thanks to God in all things, even when things don't necessarily seem to be going well. At that very moment, we stop and we give thanks to God. And he says in verse 42, I know that you always hear me, because, uh, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And this is what prayer does as well. Prayer looks to the glory of God. Prayer asks that God's name be glorified. But prayer also looks to the good of others as well. And we would want others to know the Lord Jesus Christ. We want them to know who he is and what he has done for us and for our salvation. And this is, dear friends, more crucial than anything else, more important than anything else, more than health or finances or personal happiness. People need to know the Lord Jesus Christ. They need to know him in every part of their lives. And something I read years ago, and I don't even remember what commentary it's in, but something I read in Calvin's commentaries, he said one of the most loving things, perhaps the most loving thing that you can do for people is pray for them. If we have a truly good theology of prayer and we believe what the Bible says about prayer, then praying for others is a bold demonstration that we truly love them. And Jesus also says we're to pray for our enemies, even those who might persecute us. So if you love someone who is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you pray for them. You pray for them to believe. You pray for their soul above all else. So Jesus gives a command here as well, a well-known command. 
He comes to the tomb. He cries out in a loud voice with those wonderful words, Lazarus, come forth. And guess what? Lazarus came forth. Even though Jesus had already foretold this, even though he had already given the spoiler on this, uh, that, uh, that Lazarus would, ha- would come forth. Jesus actually said something to this regard earlier in John's gospel. John 5, 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it will live. And then John 5, 28, An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. And so Lazarus' resurrection is like a preview of these things. It's like a preview of what will happen on that last day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Uh, The Confession of Faith says this, chapter 32, paragraph 2, that on the last day all the dead shall be raised up with the selfsame bodies which shall be united again to their souls. Shura Catechism, 38, at the resurrection... Believers being raised up in glory shall be openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment and made perfectly blessed to the full enjoying of God for all eternity. What is man's chief end? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And that is the promise we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. But uh, that will be a glorious resurrection scene on the last day. The one we have here, the preview we have here, if you think about it, it's almost comical in a sense. It's a great and wondrous thing, but it's almost comical because uh, it, it shows our helplessness and our dependence on Jesus. But it also shows us the great love that Jesus has for his people because when Lazarus emerges from this, he's, 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 he can't see where he is. He still has this burial cloth over his face. And he can at best just sort of shuffle around because his hands and his feet are still bound. So Jesus gives yet another command. He says, unbind him and let him go. Uh, In Mark 5, 43, Jesus raises a little girl. Uh, She's 12 years old. My oldest is 12 years old. Uh, That sort of resounds with me a bit. But she gets up. She's walking around. Her parents are, of course, excited at this. And Jesus says, give her something to eat. He's he's took care of her greatest need. He's raised her up. But then he says, give her something to eat. Leon Morris says this in his commentary on John. He says, Jesus was never so carried away by the wonder of his miracles that he forgot the needs of the person. Jesus cares about his people. He's not just simply doing these miracles to showboat or anything like that. But he cares about the needs of his people. And let me close with this, how Jesus gives even greater signs than this. We, we talk about seven signs in the Gospel of John, but some people will point to at least an eighth sign which comes near the end of John's Gospel. And that is Jesus' own resurrection from the dead. Now, it is a different resurrection. It's a more glorious resurrection. Look at some of the differences. Uh, There was no need, for example, for men to roll the stone away. Remember when the women and then later the disciples come to the empty tomb, the stone had already been rolled away. There's no need to have the grave clothes removed by someone else. Remember, they go into the tomb and they're already folded up and laying there in the tomb. And of all, there is no more death for the Lord Jesus Christ. Lazarus would 
live, and he would, uh, in theory, go on to a ripe old age, but he would later die, for the Lord Jesus Christ has conquered death, and he lives forever. And because he lives, you can live, dear friend, because he is the resurrection and the life. You can have true life, eternal life in him. And there is a spiritual resurrection that Jesus does here and now for all who have faith in him. I always like to use those before and after pictures uh, as examples of what the Christian life often looks like. We've all seen those pictures before where someone has lost a lot of weight and they, they like to put their before and after pictures there. I have a friend on Facebook who, who uh, thought he was healthy until he hit about 37 and, and his health started to decline and then he actually began to be serious about exercise and it looks completely different today. Uh, but he wanted to post his before and after pictures as well. And the Christian life is like a before and after picture. And Paul says this in Colossians 1.21, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What did the before picture look like? You were hostile. You were an enemy. You were dead in sin. You were like those crowds who seemed to follow Jesus around through John's gospel, constantly causing trouble and opposing him. But what did the after picture look like? You are reconciled. You are redeemed. You are washed clean. You are forgiven. You are counted blameless before God. And that's a radical change. It's such a radical change that the Bible uses this life and death language to refer to it. Uh, several years ago, uh, I think it was 1998, I went to England and Scotland. And while we were in Scotland, and please don't ever do this in your own homes, uh, but, but we went to Sir Walter Scott's house, and uh, his home has been turned into a museum. And there in the front room when you go in, the drawing room when you go in, there's a death mask. Uh, they, they, apparently people used to do this, right? They would, they would put a plaster on the corpse, and they, you would have a death mask. You saw, uh, I guess forever, as long as that lasted, what they looked like in death. But we are no longer in death if we are in Jesus Christ. We are alive again in Jesus Christ. And so Paul says this in Colossians 2.13, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. And we need something more than simply saying, well, you can become a better person. We need something better than cultural transformation or your best life now what we need first and foremost is new life in Jesus Christ. We need to be made new creatures in Jesus Christ. We need to have new hearts and new priorities and new devotion to Jesus Christ. We need new life in him. And even as we prepare to come to the Lord's table this morning, death is a part of that picture. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And what he has done for us, he, he has become a before picture for us. He's become death for us. He went to his death. He laid down his life for us. And we become the after picture only because of him. We are alive in him. He gives us this meal to nourish us, to strengthen us, 
for this new life in him. And then lastly, there is the call of Jesus. He tells Lazarus, come forth. What does Jesus tell us? He says, come to me. Um, he says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, and this is also a command. I, I think it's, it's not always viewed that way, but this is a command that Jesus gives. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is not a divine suggestion that he gives to us. And I think too often we read scripture like that. If I asked someone, if I was unfamiliar with the area, and I said, uh, how do I get to Covington from here? And one person may say, well, you take Highway 51. And somebody else said, I take Highway 14. Somebody says, maybe you take Old Memphis Road. And it doesn't matter. You can get there any of those ways. It is not that way with Jesus Christ. We must come to him and to him alone. There is no other way. We will only find our rest and salvation and life in him. We're not going to find it anywhere else. And if you have come to know him, then you were like Lazarus. You were dead in this world, but now you have been raised to new life in him. And so we must come to him so that we will have life in him. And when the spiritual dead or raise the spiritual life, then the unbelieving world will see this Jesus Christ for who he really is, this great Savior that he is, and he will be glorified. And when the Lord Jesus Christ is glorified, then, dear friends, we have the greatest sign of all. Amen.